0: Okay, well, let's uh, let's move to our time of study of God's Word, shall we? Would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter eleven, please? Hebrews chapter eleven. For the past uh, three weeks, we have been looking at, in particular, the subject of faith. And after giving us a definition of the nature of faith, which was at the beginning of the chapter, the author has begun to go back to the Old Testament to give us examples of of the kind of faith that pleases God, the only faith that we may use to approach Him. And I want to remind you today of the whole reason for this. Why is the author writing about faith? You might need to remember that he's writing to a a Jewish audience, and by this point in history, Judaism had deteriorated into a a, a a self-righteous works-based system. Uh, A religious workspace system. Man essentially had replaced God's glory with their own. And that's what man does. He wants to receive the glory. And he wants to say, hey, look at me. I came to God. Aren't I a great person? (laughs) But the subject, really, of this entire book has not been about the greatness of man, has it? It's been about the greatness of Jesus Christ. We don't come to God on our own merit, we can't come to him. On our own, we come to Him through Jesus Christ. And that's the new covenant. So the Holy Spirit, in writing Hebrews, has been saying, listen, even the old covenant, as good as it was, because it came from God, needs to be set aside in Christ. And for the Jews, more than anyone, that was a hard thing to understand. God had given them that covenant. How do you set it aside? But that's been the argument of the whole book. Jesus Christ, he's a a better priest, and he ministers with a better priesthood, and he mediates over a better covenant. But you have to think about a Jew who wants to enter into this new covenant. Okay, I like the new covenant, it sounds good, but it's very confusing. How do I enter it? Because there's nothing tangible. There's no temple to go to. There uh, are no sacrifices to bring and to to make. There are uh, no rituals to perform. And no external laws uh, in which you need to obey. And that's why the author culminated his entire argument with this one little phrase in chapter 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. Remember that? The just shall live by faith. And in that quote, he's quoting from the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk. What he's saying is that the way into this marvelous new covenant isn't by any work, it isn't by any ritual. It isn't by any sacrifice. It is by faith and faith alone. And according to verse six, which we looked at last week, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? He gave two reasons. For he who comes to God must, one, believe that he is, and two, believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so the author is just, uh, he's just re-educating these Hebrews basically on the subject of Faith, And he does it by giving them examples of men and of women uh, from the Old Testament, and only the Old Testament, mind you, uh, that exhibit this kind of faith. So he's showing them this is the way God has always intended. This is not really anything new. And so he uses 40 verses, 40 verses in this chapter to show them these different uh, heroes of the faith. And today we come to our third hero of the faith, and that is Noah, Noah's faith. We'll be looking at today. And contrary to the examples of Abel and uh, Enoch, where there was a limited amount of Scripture written about them, Scripture has a lot to say about Noah, doesn't it? I mean, Noah is one of the most well-known biblical characters ever. It's probably one of the first characters you even learn about with Noah and the flood and all of that. He's mentioned over 50 times in nine books of the Bible, and his account, the account of when he lived on earth, is found in in, in Genesis. It takes up six chapters, Genesis 5 uh, to 10. But we also find him in Old Testament prophets. Isaac, Isaiah and Ezekiel both both mention him. The Gospels, Matthew and, and Luke both mention him, and, and even Peter gets in on the action in both of his letters. But obviously, he appears here in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. So I just want to begin by reading the one verse, the one verse, and only one verse, that talks about Noah. It's verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to study these Old Testament heroes from the Old uh, uh, Testament uh, Lord, a catalog of men and, and women who honored you with their lives. We pray that, Lord, we would just see um, maybe in, with new eyes how we are meant to live by faith in this life. So may you be honored as we study your word. Be with us, guide us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's just one verse, and to make it easy on you, I'll uh, I'll put that verse back up on the screen when we kind of go through it a bit. But we really need to study the life of Noah if we want to kind of understand what this is all talking about. And to do that, you need to go to Genesis. So go to the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 6. Now, I want to remind you, uh, and this is from, from, from last week, well, and, and the week before a bit, that um, as we went through Genesis uh, 4 and 5, um, looking at the other, he, uh, um, the other heroes, There are two Lamechs that come to us. Um, One Lamech is in Genesis chapter 4, and this Lamech is in the family of Cain. And remember, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And so Cain is really a model of the the ungodly line of the unfaithful uh, to God. And in that line of Cain comes this man Lamech, and Lamech mocks God's curse. He brags about being a murderer. Um, He's just an ungodly man. But there comes to us a second Lamech, and he's in the godly line, the godly line in chapter five that comes from the line of Seth. Remember, Seth is born to replace Abel, the murdered brother. And so this Lamech is in Seth's family tree, and we find him in chapter five, verses 28 to 29. He's the father of Noah. Let's read about him. Verse 28, it says this, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. Imagine having a son and you're 182 years. And he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So here you can see the difference between these two Lamechs. They're kind of contrasted. The one mocks the curse of God, but this Lamech, he is seeking comfort from the curse. And in seeking comfort, he names his son Noah. Now Noah's son uh, uh, Noah's name, sorry, means rest, and the word is Noah, and it sounds familiar and similar to the word, the Hebrew word for um, comfort, Naham. So they very similar, Noah and Naham. And so he gives him this comfort name, this rest name. This one will comfort us concerning our work. So he was hoping that mankind would find a source of comfort and rest in the midst of this wicked world under the curse in his son, Noah. And we know that the world was extremely wicked during this time. Look at chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. This is the Lord's commentary on the condition of the world. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So here we come to um, this tragic part where we find out that the Lord is very, very grieved about the condition of man. But I want to just center in, if I could, just for a moment on on this verse uh, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of... Of the Lord. Now, we're talking about faith, and we're looking at the, uh, the lives of some of these uh, men of, of faith. And in each of these accounts, the writer of Hebrews tells us what that person did. He describes their actions that exhibited faith. Think back to Abel. We focused on Abel to begin with, because the author is going chronologically from the beginning of time. He went to creation, and then he went to the very next example, which was Abel, found in Genesis 4. But in in verse 4 of Hebrews, this is what he said about Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So Abel demonstrated something. What did he demonstrate? A worshiping faith. This is what I bring to you, God. He brought to God an offering in the proper manner, in the way he was meant to come to him, offered him authentic worship, worshiping faith. Then he moved to the next example, which was from the life of Enoch, which also moves chronologically to Genesis chapter 5. That's where Enoch appears. And here's what we're told in Hebrews 11:5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. This is what we looked at last week. Why was Enoch taken away? We were told because he pleased God. In fact, the Genesis account tells us just exactly how he pleased them using the same uh, Greek word. He says Enoch walked with God for 300 years, so that walking with God and pleasing God are the same Greek word. So Enoch demonstrating a walking faith. You have a worshiping faith coming from Abel, and you have a walking faith coming from uh, Enoch. He walked faithfully in fellowship with God. And with Noah, several things are listed. He moved or obeyed with godly fear. We're told that uh, he prepared an ark and that he condemned the world. All those things are examples of working faith, a faith that is working and active. But in Genesis 6, 8, we're told Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's really important before we move on to understand this. Does that mean that God saw all the good things that Noah was doing and gave him grace? No, that's not. In fact, all of the works described in Hebrews about building the ark and moving with godly fear, all those things came after this. No, no, grace was given to him based on something else. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Very well-known verse, isn't it? We are saved by grace. This, was, this is what this means. No one earns grace. We're told it is found. But it's found where? In Noah? No, in the eyes of the Lord. You see, he doesn't look upon us and say, there's grace. There's grace. That person has grace, no one has grace. Grace is only found in the eyes of the Lord, had nothing to do with anything that Noah did. In fact, it comes to us in verse eight, we haven't had anything about what Noah's going to be commanded to do. Nothing about the Ark. It just says, Oh, the world's wicked, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had just condemned mankind because the world's so evil. But here is grace, he says. And that's that is God in a nutshell. Think about what Paul said in Romans 5.20. He said this, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where sin is, and sin is prevalent, sin is in the world, grace is there, but much more, much more grace. Grace abounds. What he's saying is this, God chose to start over with one person, and that was Noah. God chooses to extend grace to mankind. That's his choice to do that, and grace is only found in the eyes of the Lord. It's completely and solely from Him. That's the first part. Now, the channel, or I could say the means by which that grace is applied to each and us individually is faith. Grace comes from the Lord, but it's applied to us by faith. It's extended to all. Everyone is offered grace, but it's only applied to some. To who? To those who demonstrate Does that make sense? So, grace is God's favor. He's poured out. Everyone can have grace, but it must be applied only through faith. No one on the planet at this time was exhibiting authentic faith. Can you think about that? Not a soul on the planet. And conservative estimates, just based off the genealogy and the children, would estimate that the population at Noah's time would be very, very close to what the population is now. That's a lot of people. And no one was found righteous except. Noah, only Noah. We're saved by grace, but through faith. Now, look at the very next verse, verse 9 of Genesis 6. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I do want to look at these words. That word just, that's the first time we see the word in the Bible. That's the word righteous, okay? That's the word righteous. Noah was righteous? Yes. We're told Noah was righteous. We were just told in verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And now we're told that he is righteous. You know why? It's really the same thing. When, when grace is applied to an individual, you are then justified. You are then righteous, forgiven, innocent in the eyes of the Lord. Noah's righteousness was not a result of his good works. He hadn't done any yet. His good works were a result of his righteousness. It's the other way around. And I want to be clear about that because people are confused about that. And Satan wants people to be confused about that. He's always been trying to confuse people about faith and about works. There are still people who look at what Paul says about faith and works and what James says about faith and works and says, look, they're opposing. They're not. They're attacking the same subject, two sides of the same coin. And so they're really trying to clear out what does it mean. If you can be convinced that you are saved by doing certain works then you are lost from God. You will never get to God. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to make people think that they can work, do some kind of works to earn salvation. Works never save anyone. But I don't want to address that aspect. I want to address the confusion that comes even among believers. Even once someone is saved, you know, we still have this confusion about faith and works. We do. And there are always two extremes that we need to be careful to avoid, and I just want to address them really briefly before we move into this, because it's so important. On the one end, and there are two L words, okay? On the one end is legalism. And legalism says you must do good works, now hear me, not to get saved, but to keep your salvation. As a believer, okay, being saved, this comes into the church. Oh yeah, you're saved by grace through faith. But you, to keep that To hold on to it, you better be doing good works. And here's what you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. You got to do all these things. That's called legalism. And maybe even in the midst of our Hebrew study, you know, we've been this for some months now, you have misunderstood what's been saying. Maybe you've misunderstood what the Holy Spirit has been trying to communicate. Or maybe I haven't communicated as, as clearly. We're never told to do good works in order to keep our salvation. We are told to continue in the faith. And there's a difference. Here's a verse we looked at last week, Colossians 1.23. It says this, if you indeed continue in the faith. Now look at the words I highlighted there, grounded, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. Not a list of make sure you're doing this and make sure you're doing that. Continue in the what? Faith. It's just remaining in the faith. We're warned against returning from that, turning from the gospel, And legalism, that's an extreme we have to avoid because we can so communicate, oh, I'm doing these things because, boy, I don't want to lose salvation. I don't want to lose God's favor to the point where I'm just just cast out. You see, good works are not a requirement of salvation. They are a result, okay? They're a result of it. And that's what Paul is rebuking the Galatians for, okay? You want to read books of the Bible that address this. There's a lot, but can I just take you to Galatians really briefly? If you can turn there, you know where it is. It's Galatians chapter three. Keep your fingers in Genesis. We'll, we'll come back to that. But in Galatians chapter three, kind of smack dab in the middle of the New Testament. Got to go past first and second uh, Corinthians there. But Galatians chapter three, this is what he's rebuking them for. I just want you to hear, hear what he's saying. He says this, oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Here's his question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Do you see what he's saying? The Holy Spirit was in them. They were saved. He said, now, how did you get that? Think about this. Was it by works or was it by hearing of what? Faith. Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Do you see that? It's all a work of the Spirit. We don't begin in the Spirit, and, go, and now God goes, okay, I gave you the Spirit, and now, boy, you better do all the rest in your flesh, and good luck with that. Paul's saying, no, no, no. If it begins in the Spirit, it ends with the Spirit. The Spirit continues the work. He is the one that continues to make us uh, perfect. Look at verse five, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? Now we'll look at Abraham next week. I don't want to go too much into that, but he said, look at Abraham, look at all he did. But when did he get righteousness? When he believed. It's faith. That's the one extreme. It's legalism. Legalism says, I've got to do these things. Or I'll displease God to the point where I've lost my salvation. What do you think the other extreme is? Another L word. It's called license. And that says, well, I have grace in my life. I have a license to do whatever I want. I have freedom in Christ I can do. There's no works required. I do nothing at all. Guys, that's another extreme. Another extreme. Works verify our faith. They are proof that our faith is genuine. Does that make sense? It's a very fine line. It's a very small difference. But the motivation is is coming from a different place. One says, I've got to do these things. And the other says, I'm created to do these things. And look at this verse, Ephesians 2.10. This is our theme verse, our family. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you go, I am a new creation. Why did God create me as something new? So I can do good works that bring him glory. And I embrace that. I go, oh, praise the Lord. Amen. I'm created for this. Rather than, do you see the other side? I've got to do these things or I'm going to displease God. I'm going to, it's a a wrong motivation. But also the license is, hey, I'm I'm saved in Christ. I don't have to do good works. I can do whatever I want. That's also incorrect. James says, faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. If there's nothing to back up what you're saying, he says, there's nothing probably there. We do not do good works to earn or keep our salvation. They don't make us righteous. So I just wanted to touch those things as we're looking at things like the righteousness of Noah. Noah's righteousness did not come from his works. His, His works came because of his righteousness. In the old covenant, men were made righteous based on their faith in God. In the new covenant today, men are made righteous based on their faith in Christ Jesus, the source of our righteousness. Noah was a just man. He was a righteous man. And that speaks of his standing before God. God looks at this man as righteous. But did you notice what else it says about him in verse 9? He was perfect in his generations. The word can be blameless, okay? Perfect or blameless. Here's the word in the Hebrew. It's tamim, and it means upright. It means having integrity. He's not perfect in terms of sinless. That's not what he's saying. He's integrous. Now, this is his position, not before God, his position before man. You see the difference? So justified, righteous is my position before God. God looks at me as perfect because I have the righteousness of Christ. We'll look at that later. But man also should look at us and see men and women of integrity, people who are honest, people who are above reproach. That's why we see the requirements for church leadership in 1 Timothy, right? About people being above reproach, blameless. That was Noah. That was Noah. And so we're told that Noah walked with God. And we saw that last week. To walk with God means to fellowship with with God. And his great-grandfather, Enoch, walked with God. And he was subsequently rescued from judgment, wasn't he? I mean, judgment was coming. This flood was coming. And he was rescued. God took him straight to heaven. Noah walked with God, and God chose to save Noah as well. He rescues him from judgment. And the reason? Because Noah demonstrated a genuine faith. No one else on earth had faith in God. Hard to believe that. So in this section, I know that's all kind of introduction. In this section, the author gives us three really things that faith accomplishes. You can say it that way, maybe. Faith's obedience, faith's witness, and faith's inheritance. You don't have to remember all now. We'll go through them. But the first one is faith's obedience, okay? Faith's obedience. And I'll put up Hebrews eleven seven 7 for you again. We're just looking at the first part of that verse so you can remember it. It says, by faith... Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Firstly, look at, let's look at the Genesis account to catch exactly what the author is referring to here. We're told that Noah received a divine warning. You see that? A divine warning. Uh, we already learned that God was sorry that he made man. That was in verses 6 and 7. But look at that again of Genesis uh, 6. It says, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Now, before we move on from that, we have, we have something that confuses people here too as well. What we have here is an example of an anthropomorphism. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that is, that is a, a, a word that defines what's happening here. It's a statement about God, but in human terms. And you see it all through the Bible, Uh, God's going to pass by Moses and and God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You're going to look at my back. Well, God doesn't have a a back as a human has a back Or, or the hand of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, because God is a spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth, we're told. God is not a man, but many times in scripture, so that man can understand God, we see things from a human perspective. It's an anthropomorphism. So from a human perspective, it appears God changes his mind. God made man, oh, this is going to be great, I made mankind, and then all of a sudden they're all wicked. Oh, I'm sorry I made them. It's almost, God made a mistake. God Did God make a mistake here? No, nothing has happened that has taken God by surprise. God doesn't change his mind, he's immutable, he's unchanging. And Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Repent means to change, to change his mind, to change his ways. Has he said, and will he not do? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? God's not a man that he changes his mind. God is called the glory or the strength of Israel in 1 Samuel 15. Look what it says about him in verse 29. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent for he's not a man that he should relent. So God is not a man like we believe him uh, to be many times. This old grandfather sitting on a throne with a long beard. God has not changed his mind in regards to man, but he has determined in his mind to punish sin, and God is always going to do that, but it grieved him in his heart to do so. And so he doesn't want to wipe out mankind completely. He determines to start over with Noah, a man who pleased him by his faith. And so he warns Noah, and the warning comes in verse 13. Look at it. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, skip down to verse seventeen and eighteen for the continuing of the warning. And behold, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark. You, your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, one thing you need to consider here is that the mere mention of something like floodwaters is probably a mystery to Noah. Uh, Floods only occur when there's an excess of rain, but it had never rained before. Uh, Later on, God will use the word rain in chapter 7, but according to Genesis 2, if you want to look back at Genesis 2, verses 5 and and 6, it says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Before the flood, there wasn't rain. So never, never, he had never seen rain, but he's, he's being warned about rain and these floods. Now, what's he warned about? Look at the verse again, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. God's telling him things he's never seen. I, I've never seen rain. You see that? He's never seen it. Now, if he had seen rain and people contend, oh, there's probably, there was probably rain before that. Well, then he's not being warned of things not yet seen. But we're told from Hebrews that he had never seen it. Now, do you remember in Hebrews 11, 1, when faith was defined for us? I'll put that verse up. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's faith. Faith is, is believing in the things, even though you've never seen them. That's faith. So Noah obeyed in faith, even though he could not possibly understand everything that God was communicating to him. Now I'm going to destroy the entire world. Now think about where Noah lived. Well, what's the entire world? Like, what, what's that look like? You know, he just, he just knows his area. He wouldn't know. There were no satellites and pictures. He just, okay, and I'm going to do it by floodwaters. Right. Okay. There's a great comedy sketch I think Bill Cosby used to do back in the day, right? Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with rain. Right. What's rain? You know, and he just questions him about the whole thing. Right. What's the earth? You know, he just did, you know, we just take for granted these things. But we're told here these were things not yet seen. But faith moves on things not seen. Now look at the second part of Hebrews eleven seven, 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. The word for fear there is reverence. It's awe. He wasn't afraid of God. It wasn't, you know, like God was going to smack him. But this is a sobering message. Think about this. This message coming from God, one which would cause you to act and respond with reverence. God's going to destroy all life on the earth. That demands godly fear. And Psalm 25, 14 says this, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. God said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you because he feared him. He had reference for him. You have the ability to wipe out all mankind on the earth? Okay, I, I, I bow down to that. I will, I will obey you. That's awesome power. And so Noah responded and he built, he built an ark. So look at Hebrews eleven seven again for the very last part. I underlined it for you. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Now, Noah probably at this time lived in Mesopotamia. That would have been uh, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Now, I've got a map for you so you can kind of see where this area uh, is. It's the green kind of fertile area. On the, There it is. It says Mesopotamia in the green there in the middle. Okay. A little ways away from any kind of large body of water, would you say? I mean, the nearest thing is the Mediterranean uh, Sea over there, uh, Pers- Persian Gulf way down there, hundreds of miles away. No it's in the middle of, a, of nowhere, in the middle of the desert, and he is going to uh, build a boat. He's going to build a vessel, and the instructions are to build not just a boat, not a dinghy, n- not these little things you see the you know kids' pictures with the giraffe's head sticking out. And right, a giant vessel. I know uh, I, uh, I showed you guys a picture a few weeks back, so I'm not going to do that uh, again. But here's the dimensions. that comes to us in verses 14 to 16 of chapter six. We skipped those till now. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, the exact length of a cubit in Noah's time, it's not exactly certain. I know we did a cubit measurement in here to kind of replicate the uh, tabernacle. You might remember that. It's about 18 inches from elbow to the tip of your middle finger. They estimate on the lowest end, 17 and a half inches. So if you take even the lowest conservative measurements, that means the ark would have been 438 feet long. I told you it wouldn't fit on the pitch in the Principality Stadium. It's a big, long boat, 73 feet wide, 44 feet high. It would have been a huge wooden box. That was built not for navigation. There was no sail, no rudder. It was built for flotation. It was built to withstand the punishing waves and the seas. And it had three decks, which means the total deck area would be 96,000 square feet. And the total volume within those decks would have been 1.3 million cubic feet. That's a lot of room. What was all that room for? Look back at verse 19 of Genesis 6. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and food uh, for them. And thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. He did it all. So all of this room in the ark was for Noah, uh, his family, and for all these animals. And Dr. Henry Morse calculated that the ark was large enough to hold the contents of 500 livestock railroad cars, which would be about 125,000 animals. And people go, well, see, that's that's not enough. I mean, there's way more animals than that. But Noah was told to only take two of every animal kind species, one of the dog kind, one of the cat kind, you know, one of every kind. So actually, there was more than enough room. And God divinely brought the animals to Noah. Noah didn't have to go out there and figure out how to, you know, do an elephant call or, you know, hippo waddle. And God brought them to him. And undoubtedly, God would have brought the smaller representatives of this larger species. You know, I'm sure he didn't bring a full-grown elephant, probably a small one, right? God's Smart that way. So all these animals were brought into the ark. They all went into the ark. And you know what the ark is? It's a beautiful picture of salvation. That's what the ark is. is, is. In fact, we're, we're told here in Genesis 6, 14, look at this. This is, this is amazing. This blew my mind. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now that word pitch in the uh, Hebrew is kafir. And it's the same word that's used for atonement, to cover your sin. To cover with pitch is to cover your sin. It's atonement. The ark was covered inside and outside with pitch. And it was the pitch that kept the the waters of God's judgment from ever entering in and touching them. God's judgment never touched Noah or his family. You know that verse we've looked at several times in Leviticus, Leviticus 17.11? You could put the cover with pitch in there because it's the same word. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for or cover with pitch your souls. Isn't that amazing? That's the same word. Likewise, it's the blood of Christ because it's the blood that atones for souls, isn't it? The blood of Christ that atones for our sins. God's judgment never reaches the sinner covered by the blood of Jesus. That's what the blood of Jesus is for, by the way. I know there's a lot of people that like to pray the blood of Jesus for various things. I pray the blood of Jesus on that person to protect him from this and from Satan and from that. The blood of Jesus was never designed to protect you from any of those things. It's designed to protect you from one thing and one thing only, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. That's what the blood of Jesus protects you from. So if you pray that way, Stop. that's not using the blood of Jesus in the right way. That's saying, I'll throw the blood of Jesus on everything. I put it on my piano. I put it on my house. It is not to protect you from anything but the judgment of God. Believers covered by the blood of Christ, they will never experience God's judgment. There's another reason why I think we're not here (laughs) when God's judgment comes. But here's the main point. God also said this, no, I want you to build a giant boat. And I want you to put all these animals in it. And I want you to get inside and, and, and trust me. And we never have any questions from Noah. We never have any Peter, you know, doubting things. He just dropped everything and he built a boat in the middle of nowhere. You see, trust in God is always accompanied by obedience. That's what's happened here. It's like that great old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way. We're trust, to trust God and obey him even when we don't understand what he's doing, even, even when it doesn't make sense. If, like, think about Peter. Peter went fishing all night long, right? He got no fish. He just tried all night long. He was so tired. He comes in and Jesus is there. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to go out and cast a net. He said, trust me, trust me Lord. There ain't nothing out there. He said, no, you trust me and go cast out your net. And he did. And what happened? He, he, he had so many fish, he couldn't even pull in the nets. He had to have another boat come help him. See, that's, that's trust. Following God in obedience. Noah had no idea what rain was. Noah probably didn't even know what a big boat would be I just, you know... So trust began when he picked up that axe, and he began to fell that first tree. And so the better part of 100 years, he built a boat for the Lord. But that's how we witness in this world. It's Our our primary uh, testimony is our faith, and that brings us to the second aspect of, of faith, what comes from that faith's witness. You have faith's obedience, real faith, authentic, genuine faith will obey God, but also genuine faith will be a witness. Hebrews eleven seven. 7, look back at our verse again. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world. How did Noah condemn the world? Well, in 2 Peter, Peter has given us examples of, uh, from the Old Testament, and he's given us examples of God's faithfulness to judge the ungodly, to judge sin. And this is what he says in 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. In the midst of preparing the world for judgment, we're told that that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God placed Noah there as a preacher of righteousness. Now, what what did he preach? You know, wonder, like, there's no, there's no sermon on the ark here, is there? There's no sermon on the mount, sermon on the ark. We don't know. I, I'm sure that he verbally warned people about the judgment of God coming as they walked by and said, what are you doing? I'm sure he did that. But his primary testimony, his primary message was building a boat for 100 plus years. That was the prime. And think about that. Think about the ridicule. How long would you go doing something you were sure God told you to do? And, and withstand ridicule, ridicule until you were like, I don't know if I heard this right. Maybe I should be, maybe I should be done with this. hundred plus years. Now, how do we know he worked on the boat that long? Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. God started a countdown for mankind. Mankind had 120 years, and then the flood was coming. Now, why did he do that? Why didn't he just uh, wipe out mankind, uh, be done? I mean, he could have saved Noah and his family the same way he saved Enoch, right? Come with me. I'm just going to walk you into heaven, and then I'll, I'll just take care of everybody. Why, why 120 years? Why give him a giant project that would take 120 years? 1 Peter 3, verse 20 says this, When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. We're told that God was long-suffering, that he waited patiently. What did he wait for? Patiently. Well, he waited for the ark to be built. That's right. And so what was he doing during that time? Remember, the, the world was evil, and it had a great evil continually, we were told in six five, And we're told that God knew the intents of the heart, and every intent of the thought of the heart was evil Continually. So God wasn't just looking at the actions of people. He saw the intentions of their heart. God knows your heart. And sin is an affront to God. So for 120 years, sin is just perpetuating on the earth, and God is faithfully, long-suffering, patiently waiting for that ark to be built. 120 years is time for people to repent. That's what that was. Because God is gracious. He assigned Noah a task to build a vessel. I mean, there could be something quicker, could a vessel of salvation from judgment and everyone who passed by that had a chance to be saved. That ark had extra room, lots of extra room, extra room for people to come on board if they chose to, but they didn't. Every time God promises judgment, when you look in scripture, every time he also provides salvation from it. You think of, um, you know, the angel of death that was coming out in that 10th plague, I'm going to send an angel of death. He's going to wipe out the firstborn of every family. But what does he tell the Hebrews? But if you put the blood of a lamb on the door, on the lintels of your door, and you get inside under the covering of that blood, you will be saved. And they obeyed. And those inside the houses under the covering of the blood, the angel of death passed over. That's where they get Passover from. But all the other homes, firstborn was killed. You think of Lot. God placed Lot in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, wretched cities, but we're told that he was a righteous man and he was in the midst of unrighteous people. Even Abraham pleaded, like, if you're going to wipe these people out, could you, could you save them if you find 50 people, find 30 people, find 10, 10 righteous people? God couldn't even find 10. He took Lot out. He took Enoch out. He took Noah out. Every time God promises judgment, he provides salvation from it. Lot was a, a man of righteousness. He had the example, the testimony. They just didn't look at it. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that, sh- that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want to destroy everybody. People just don't come to him in repentance. The sad truth, after 120 years of faithful witness by Noah, of the righteousness of God, not one single person repented. That's because of unbelief. That's unbelief. They didn't believe in God, nor in his promises. You know, Jesus commented on, on the suddenness of his return. And he says this, that he likens it to the time of Noah. In Matthew 24, he says this, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage... Until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, Jesus isn't commenting on the wickedness of the, the world in those days, although it was very wicked, but what he's commenting on is the indifference of the world. They're just going on with life. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're given in marriage. Why? Unbelief. They didn't believe in the warnings because they didn't believe in God and nor in his promises. It was Spurgeon who said this, he who does, doesn't believe God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through atoning blood. If you don't believe in God's judgment and his righteous judgment on sin, you won't believe that there's forgiveness, pardoning blood through the atoning work of Christ. But God dealt patiently with the world and he gave them time to repent. But there does come a time when God says enough is enough. And God basically said that, when my my spirit shall not strive with man forever. You got 120 days, that's it. Strive there in that word, by the way, and that that verse is dean. Sorry, that's the word. (laughs) Contend or plead. Contend. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to, to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is contending. He's pleading with people to repent, he says, but my spirit won't contend forever. There's gonna be a time when I will remove that. You know what? And that's true. There will come another time when the spirit will be removed. It's actually the Second Thessalonians, the men have been studying this. 2 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I didn't have time to give you the whole context there. But uh, the wickedness of the world in the end times and the rise of the Antichrist, those things are being restrained. Evil is being restrained, held at bay by a he. But, but that will stop when he is taken out of the way. Who is the he that holds back evil? It's the Holy Spirit. And there'll be a time when he will be taken out of the way, and then it will be hell on earth. So the first time God removed mankind right, from his spirit, the second time God will remove his spirit. From mankind, God left a preacher on the earth to preach righteousness, and God left the church here to preach righteousness in these days. Mankind has an opportunity to repent, to seek refuge from judgment of God within the ark, Jesus Christ, his blood. So that's faith's witness. And the third thing is faith's inheritance. Look at that last part of Hebrews eleven seven, 7. And he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah is the first man in Scripture to be called righteous. But that righteousness did not come to him because he he built a boat. That's not what happened. The righteousness was given to him because he had faith. That's faith's inheritance. Paul wanted this kind of righteousness. When you look at Paul's life, he said this in Philippians 3, verse 9, and I want to be found in him, is what he's saying, in Jesus Christ. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. Now that little last phrase is perfect. You can't say it more succinctly or accurately. The righteousness, which is from God by faith. You can get your own righteousness. You can do that, but it's useless. (laughs) The Bible says our righteousness is filthy rags. Meaning we, we think we're putting on pure white garments, you know, things that, oh, look, God, this is pleasing. And he looks at it and says, that's just a polluted garment. Mm-hmm. The righteousness we, we need only comes from God, but it must come to us by faith. Romans 3, to 23, Paul writes this, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The righteousness of God, comes to us to all and on all who what? Believe, who have faith. So guess what? I'm righteous. Am I right? I am. I'm not self-righteous. I'm righteous. I stand before you today righteous in my standing before God. Not my own, but the righteousness of Christ. It's because of his atoning work. And it begins with faith. You must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Noah believed in God, but he also believed that God would reward him with salvation. So he obeyed God, even when it didn't make sense, and he looked ridiculous to the rest of the world. And John MacArthur was reading, he, he relayed a story, an illustration from his father. There was a man walking up and down the street in their neighborhood that wore a sandwich board, and it had words on the front that people always liked to make fun of and laugh. And, he said on the front, it said, I am a fool for Christ. And people would walk by, you are a fool, right? But for those few that looked back and took a second glance, they saw that there were more words on the back. And the words on the back said, who's fool are you? Mm-hmm. You see, we're all following someone. Yeah. We're all following something. I'll be a fool for Christ any day. I, the world can laugh at me for Christ any time, but you're, you're a fool for somebody. Are you a fool for Christ? Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose, give what you cannot keep. You can't keep it. Whatever you have here, you, you can't keep it. But you gain something you can never, ever lose eternal salvation. Noah gave over 100 years of his life looking like a fool to the world. But in the end, it was not he who was the fool. He became heir of righteousness of God. Today, we get the righteousness of God through Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. We get the righteousness because of something Christ did. Noah is a great example of a walking faith, obediently walking in life, doing what God has asked us to do faithfully, obediently, trusting in him, even when it doesn't make sense. Are you willing to be a fool for Christ? I pray you are. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the wonderful example of Noah. It's really even hard to imagine such a thing. Lord, I know we often focus on the story and the, the flood and the rain, and the number of days and the water and all those things, but what a great thing to look at what, what Noah did in this time and what, what he gained from it. Righteousness. You, you gave him righteousness, Lord, and it's incredible to know that we can be made righteous. Again, not because of of what we do. The righteousness given to us, Lord, is something that that comes out, expresses itself in works. We want to please you. We want to do things that glorify you. We want to obey your, your word. We want to say no to the world. We want to say no to the flesh. We want to say yes to the spirit. In fact, Christianity following Christ is much more saying yes than it is saying no. Is saying yes to the promises of God, yes to everything that he has granted us in Christ. We say yes today. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. We pray your people be edified and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing a closing song.